What's up, everybody? I'm JJ John J. Stramski. And I'm Jason Goff. And if you haven't heard, The Ringer has gone local. I'm bringing the fire. I'm bringing the rain from the Big Apple with my show, New York, New York. And I'm repping Chi-Town with my new show, The Full Go on All Things Chicago. We've got episodes three nights a week with all the reaction to the local teams and guests. Plus bonus episodes around all the big games and storylines. So whether you're uptown, downtown, in the burbs, or a transplant. Make sure you follow New York, New York, and The Full Go on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before, because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger... Not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef. Because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Daya, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Daya Oat Cream Blend. It is the Ring Run NFL Show, part of the Ring Podcast Network. I'm Kevin Clark, joined today by a couple of great guests for one big question. Is Tom Brady going to play forever? With that comes a lot of different questions. How the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have maximized Tom Brady, how Tom Brady has maximized Tom Brady in his age 44 season, what this means for the Patriots, what Tom Brady leaving New England for Tampa Bay has meant for other quarterbacks and whether that will impact the future of quarterback movement, of player movement, of superstar movement in the NFL. Really interesting discussion. And also a look at the rookie quarterbacks, how they're doing, what's wrong with the Bears, and many other things. Albert Breer from Post Illustrated will join us, and Sam Monson from Pro Football Focus will also join. Awesome conversations. Let's get to it. Albert Breer from Sports Illustrated, what's your title? Are you just insider? Uh, yeah, I mean, like, when I replaced Peter, they gave me the title uh, Lead Content Strategist, which sort of meant, like, I was going to help map out the site. The site kind of merged with SINFL, so, um, you know, senior writer slash senior reporter... Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I like I, the 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 short of it is uh, like I don't really ever refer to myself by my title. title. So whatever it is, I mean, I think it maybe has something to do with how I'm paid, which you know, yeah, I, yeah. I, and maybe so maybe it's important from that standpoint, right? <laughs> like I guess you know, I don't know. Whatever gets you the most money is the title I'll call it. That's you. right. Yeah, um, absolutely. So we're doing an episode with the very simple question: Is Tom Brady going to play forever? And the answer seems to be yes. And the reason I had you on, Albert, is because four or five years ago, you were one of the first people I saw report what Tom Brady, not only what his goals were, because Brady always talked about his goals, but why they were his goals. And you had talked about um, some of the Tom House stuff and how Tom Brady was aging. Um, We're in 2021, and I don't think anyone expected, maybe they expected Tom Brady to be playing at this point when he's 44 years old, but not coming off the Super Bowl, not captaining one of the best offenses in football. And I'm yeah. curious, as someone who studied it and been around it and been close to it, are you surprised that it's been this good for this long and it's still happening? Or did you, having followed it, did you understand what the kind of roadmap was for Brady? Okay, so I'll answer this two different ways. Am I surprised that he still has the desire to keep going? No. Am I surprised that he's still playing at this level at this age? Of course. I don't know how you couldn't be. I mean, 
there is no precedent for this at all, you know, and as much as he and Tom house and Alex Guerrero and all the different people studied it, um, you know, we still had no precedent. And, you know, I think that's part of the reason why he's not a Patriot anymore is that there wasn't a precedent for it. Um, you know, and so am I surprised that he still wants to play? No, because I think everyone has gotten his motivation for playing wrong for a long, long time. But, I like I am surprised that he's able to perform at this level at this age because we've seen so many other examples of guys falling off um, way, way before this. So, okay, there's a couple of things you said that were interesting. Um, The first one is the motivation. You said people have gotten wrong his motivation for playing. Mm -hmm. What is his motivation for playing? He needs competition the way a lot of a lot of us need oxygen. Um, (laughs) And I. I mean, all of us need oxygen, I guess, right? Um, so, like, I, I've always... I don't know, is that, like, is that part of the TB12 method? Yeah, I mean, oxygen? I like, I, I think that there may be... If, if there's some sort of competition drug, um, <laughs> I guarantee you, like, he's bottled it. Yeah, it's in his veins, and they'll be marketing it soon on the website. Um, <laughs> I don't, like... I Honestly, like, I think a lot of people think, like, okay, like, well, he's looking for some sort of fairy tale ending, or he's looking to get back at Bill now. And I just don't think that's it. Like, I just, I mean, the maybe like the most insightful thing that people have said to me over the years about Tom is that he's legitimately fearful of what life is going to be like without football. He's legitimately fearful of what is going to happen when he doesn't have this outlet. And you hear all these different stories about how competitive he is. And, you know, I've got a million of them, um, you know, that I've heard from different guys who've played with him and been around him. Um, about how everything's a competition for him. Well, this is such an incredible outlet for him to satisfy that, you know? And so, like, I just think he genuinely... So I think, like, competition keeps him going. Love of football keeps him going. It has nothing to do with legacy or putting another trophy on the the mantle or um, proving Belichick wrong. The other piece of it that I think, like, that I think people miss is... What happens with most football players, they don't fall out of love with Sunday. The guys who are lucky enough to make their own decision on it, right? Because yeah. both you, you and I know like that percentage of players that are like, actually in position to make that decision on their own and not have so somebody low. else, it's so really, low. really small, right? But most of those guys, like the guys who are lucky enough to be able to make that decision for themselves, they don't fall out of love with Sunday, Kevin. They fall out of love with Monday through Saturday, Monday through right? Yep. Like yep. They, have, they fall out of love with having to stay on it in the five, six, seven months of the offseason and like having to live their life that way because the older yeah. you get, the more you have to live your life that way, right? Because you're losing it physically. It's not as naturally there for you. And that's the other part about Brady that I think people miss. He loves the other parts of it. Like he yeah. loves the other parts of it. I'm sure you've heard the, the story. And there's a famous story out there, you know, about, you know, when he was at, um, you know, Will McDonough, who used to be his um, yeah, of you know, kind of, you know, his right-hand guy for all those years early in his career, who had been a marketing guy for the Patriots, he got married, um, I think it was in the Bahamas. And there's a story that's been out there for a while now about like how all these guys are waking up at, you know, 6.30 a.m., you know, just destroyed from the night before. And there's some sort of breakfast or something like that. They look out the window and Brady's like, you know, running with resistance bands with Alex Guerrero on a football field down the street. So, um, you know, I think that's the other part of it is... Like, not only does he love Sunday, he, he actually genuinely enjoys the process of getting his body ready and getting his mind ready to play that Monday through Saturday, which, you know, ultimately that stuff's going to be his life's work after he's done playing. But I think that's the other part of it that 
keeps him on the field is that he doesn't hate the parts of it that I think a lot of athletes grow to hate. Okay, so I want to go back to something about the the roadmap and the studying and the Tom House analysis yeah. and all that stuff. You've talked uh -huh. about it. Like part of it's based on Nolan Ryan's throwing right. motion and how how he was aging. Uh, just give us a brief over not brief or not brief, um, however you want to take it. Uh, the overview on what what track they've been following. So like forty five sounds like an arbitrary number, just because it's it's I guess the definition of your mid forties, right? So that sounds like an arbitrary number, but it's not. It's actually Part of the study that you know Tom House and people around Tom House have done into athletes and athletic performance, um, and you know it's basically based on Nolan Ryan. Tom House played with right. Nolan Ryan, um, and so you know like the basis for him studying how long athletes can play for, how long they can perform for, um, you know, was based a lot of, a lot of it on his experience around Nolan Ryan, where he was around Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan started to lose it after forty five. Well, why is that? It's not for the reasons a lot of people think. Right. The reason why is because your body can't recover the same way, which makes it so you can't train the same way. So, like what they found was, and I don't ask me to explain the science of this, but <laughs> like basically what they found was physiologically, um, after you get past forty-five, and obviously that's not a hard number, but right around there, um, your body doesn't recover the same way than it did before. And that makes it so much more difficult to train and maintain the level of strength, the level of speed, um, all the different stuff that go into being able to move around like a pro athlete, being able to throw like a pro athlete. So, um, you know, that's why Tom Brady used that number 45. It's also why you heard Drew Brees use that number at one point. Yeah. He didn't make it there, but he used that number. I mean, I had Andy Dalton use that number to me, and I know that sounds funny now, right? Oh, but but I've heard but I've heard no. Andy Dalton. Oh no! <laughs> but Andy Dalton worked with Tom House too, so you hear all these different guys say it, right? And I think people think that that's just a number people throw out there, but it's an actual God. And you're rubbing your forehead now. No, um, I just but but, but there's I'm, actual I'm imagining science a meeting. 45. Yes, I'm imagining a meeting where it's Tom House, Drew Brees, Tom Brady, and Andy Dalton. And all three of them say, yes, we're going into our 40s. And Breeze and Brady just look at Dalton and we're like, they're like, yeah, man, right on. Absolutely. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, okay. but, it, but it, yeah, that, that, that's the whole point. It's like, it's not, it's not an arbitrary number. There's actually science behind it. And that's why Brady always set the number at 45. And that's, I think, why now he's sort of like, well, if that Maybe number 40. doesn't necessarily <laughs> apply to me, if I can kind of cheat that number somehow then I want to keep playing because I think he knows too. Here's the other thing. The other thing about football, Kevin is you can't just go play in a men's league when you're done, right. you're done. You know what I mean? Like, so that's part of it too. Uh, I want to talk about the effect that Brady sat around the league because I think that, and this is something I, the moment that Brady left the Patriots mm -hmm. in my mind, I said, okay, everything that happened before this is, 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 is uh, a matter of history and it is settled and nothing can change how I view the Patriots dynasty based on what happened after. Then Tom Brady did a bunch of stuff that changed how I thought about the Patriots dynasty. <laughs> and he went out and he basically used the Bucks as an indictment unintentionally, obviously of, of how Belichick and Josh Daniels built the offense. Uh, the last few years he was in New England. Or intentional. And, Intentionally, yeah, sure. No, I just, he <laughs> yeah. didn't. He didn't. He didn't say it. You know, right? He he, he was. It was a subtweet, I guess you could say, right? Yeah. Um. And and you just look at how that offense was built in the last few years, and it was clear the limitations were not Brady's. The limitations were yeah. the personnel around him. And now I think, and you think, 
that there are people around the league who are top, top quarterbacks who say, you know what, I'd like to do that. And I'm curious uh, what you think that the the quote unquote Brady effect will be. Not not the aging part of it, just the I'm going to go stake my claim and do my own thing and show how good I am. So like two pieces of this, I, I think the first piece, like what you mentioned is like the f- impact that Brady had on that organization overall, uh, I think has now been confirmed. And I think yeah. we all sort of thought this, but the idea like that, the, the, that Brady facilitated so many things in New England, he facilitated Belichick's coaching style. He facilitated their economic system. He facilitated their off-season program. Like he facilitated so many things just by being him inside that yeah. building, right? And he's basically taken that. And I know you've been down there, Kevin. That's Brady's show down there. Like he's taken it and he's basically yeah. exported it, right? And now the Bucks are getting guys on reasonable contracts to stay. The Bucks are working in the offseason in a way that is just completely different than other teams. I mean, I don't know how much you paid attention to this or the listeners paid attention to this, but the Bucks were basically running two offseason programs in the spring yeah. because Brady had had the veterans offsite working and Arians was running basically a developmental program for the young guys. So Brady facilitated that. Um, you know, he's facilitated the, like the, like he just like, Raises the bar for everybody, you know? Yeah. And so, like, I think that's the first piece of it. The second piece of it, which I think is more interesting just from a, you know, global standpoint, is what he's done across the league. I firmly believe a lot of the Aaron Rodgers drama and a lot of the Russell yeah. Wilson drama was a result of Tom Brady not only, not only doing what he did, but it worked. I think this is the first real example of we've seen a team operating that way. In, in professional football where it actually worked. And so I think, you know, your Aaron Rodgers and your Russell Wilsons and, you know, before, before, you know, the more serious stuff happened to Sean Watson too. I, I think these guys look at it and say, I want that. You know what I mean? Like I, I want a team to be building on my timeline. Cause if you look at the way the bucks have built, it's, I don't care. We don't care what happens after Brady's here. We're going to compete right. for championships for the next couple of years and we'll deal with whatever comes next when it comes. And so like, I think, you know, a Russell Wilson or an Aaron Rodgers looks at it and says, why isn't my team building that way? Why can't, yeah. and, and if I can put myself in a new situation where a team's going to invest in me at that level, then that team will be basically compelled to operate that way. And oh, by the way, part of this, that's what I'm up against, right? Like yeah. if I want to compete for a championship for the next two years, that's what I'm competing against. And, you know, I, so I think that it's had this effect on quarterbacks where it's like, I think they all sort of look at it and say, I want an organization to build on my timeline. I want an organization to be aggressive in finding me weapons. I want an organization to optimize my personal performance. Um, and I want to be working for an organization that's going to act with a sort of urgency that's going to put me in a position to compete with Tampa Bay. And it's so crazy to think that because no one thought of the Buccaneers 18 months ago. But I think that sort of illustrates really well kind of what's happened here. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because I think that over the last couple of years, people have talked about the Chiefs and they're saying, oh, well, the Orlando, ba- Orlando Brown trade was a bit of a panic and all that and, or whatever. The Frank Carr trade was mm-hmm. bad. And, and some of these, yeah, in a vacuum with player value have not worked out. But you have Patrick Mahomes and you're just maximizing the window. You're going all in. You're taking these risks because one day you won't have Patrick Mahomes. And like mm-hmm. I understand the long game and I've long admired the long game. But you also understand that you have the best quarterback in football. Do something with him. Um, well, and I'm also, curious. here's, 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 here's yeah. the, other, the other one other thing I think is important to mention there. When you have Brady, right, 
if it doesn't work out, it like sort of like he can erase that, right? Like if yeah. you make a move that doesn't work out, like, you know, we talked about them loading up last year. Like Shady McCoy, like Shady McCoy is a great player back in the day. Shit, that didn't that didn't really do much for them last year. You know what I mean? Like the Leonard Fournette net, net move didn't really pay off until yeah. the playoffs, right? Yeah. So that's the other part of it is if you're making these sorts of moves over the course of the year, Brady has a way of either enhancing those moves or yeah. erasing the moves if they're mistakes. Shady McCoy put him over the top. He was the difference between uh between beating but like beating moral support. Out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm the 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 question you brought up earlier. Everyone thinks so. Oh, he's mad at Bill. Maybe that's why he's doing it. Or that might be some part of it. Is he mad at Bill? Yeah, I don't think that relationship's in a very good place. Um, okay. But I would say this. I, I think 10, 15, 20 years down the line, they'll probably be sitting on the back porch of some country club that me or you will never be welcome in and laughing about all of this. Um, and I think part of that is Bill, part of that is Brady. Um, but I think like, I, like my feeling on it is this is sort of who Bill's always been. And I remember having a conversation with Drew Bledsoe about this. And, you know, Drew obviously had a really ugly exit from New England, right? Yeah. And so he and I, this is when I went out to visit him in Oregon a couple of years ago. And, and Drew's a great guy. And, um, you know, I, like I asked him, I'm like, so where's your relationship with Parcells and where's your relationship with Belichick? And he says, funny, it's kind of the opposite that I thought it would, would be. He's like, I've got no relationship with Parcells and I've got a great relationship with Belichick. I said, oh, that's funny. Like, why is that? And he said, well, he's like, basically, you know, I, like, I, I remember going to the Patriots Hall when I, when I got in the Patriots Hall of Fame in 11 and, you know, I show up and, you know, I like they, they, they have like an in-stadium practice that day, right? So I go out and they're going to introduce me at the in-stadium practice or whatever before they induct me in the Hall of Fame. And he's like, and I'm nervous because I still have some like hard feelings for Bill at the time. And I, I like, I, I'm not completely over it. And I also think like if I go out there in the field during practice, it's going to be really awkward. Yeah. And he said he went up to Bill and Bill gave him a big hug and said, how's your wine? Like, how's your family? How? Except it couldn't have been warmer, right? And that sort of took me back to another story, which, and I know I'm being long-winded here, so I apologize for that. But there's another story of like, this was maybe three years before that. And I was with Bill um, and doing a big kind of Q&A thing with him. And I said to him, um, you know, I had somebody compare you to Carnegie. And like, he kind of smirked at me and he's like, (laughs) well, what did that mean? And I said, well... I said, this person who knows you pretty well said you're like Carnegie in that when he, when you're at work with, when you were at work with Carnegie um, back in Pittsburgh and whenever it was, right, he was the most difficult person to work for and everyone cursed him out and he was just, just a, like an a-hole, right? Like, right, but right. he got results, he got results, but he was an a-hole. It was tough to work for, right? And then Carnegie would go home and like get around his family and his friends and he's, you know, would snap his fingers and be a totally different person, person, okay. charitable in the community, good to the yeah. people around him. Everyone loves him. So I tell Bill, Bill this, right. And Bill just looks at me and kind of smiles and goes, well, it's pretty f- flattering to be compared to Carnegie. So oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so he's yeah. sort of like that. And I think that yeah. that's what, it, I think that that's what it is. Like, I think Bill with, a, with players, with coaches who worked for him, like, 
there it's like he is as good as anybody I've ever seen at compartmentalizing his life. And so I think it is, I think it literally is like people are in his professional life and then eventually they move over to his personal life and he's like, he's a different person. And there'll come a time when Brady moves from his professional life to his personal life. And when it gets there, I think it'll be all right. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. There's no better feeling than a personal win and the State Farm personal price plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Has this last 18 months, whatever you want to call it, changed anything about how you viewed the first 20 years of the Patriots dynasty? Maybe a little. Um, you know, I, I think I, I sort of like look at, I look at it as like almost two dynasties now. Yeah, um, and right. so, and I think, I, I think we always have like, right. Like there's yeah. that That's natural breaking. T- 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 yeah. Tom Curran has talked about that where he thinks that the first three Super Bowls were Belichick. The second three were Brady. Yeah, and I'd agree with Tom on that one. Like, I, I like that's sort of where I was going is that I think, you know, like there's a natural breaking point in 09. You know, they tried to kind of like hang on to a lot of the vestiges of the last dynasty and it didn't work. And that was the year that NFL films followed Bill around. You remember, like, yeah, there was a I, shot of him and Brady in the sidelines. Like, I just, so. what was it? Like, I, it was something along the lines of, like, I just can't get this team to do what I wanted to do or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then the second dynasty started with the 10 draft, which was McCordy and Gronk and, and Aaron Hernandez. And, um, and so I think like, I, I think, I think current spot, spot on there and saying like the first three, I think were largely bill and maybe it took us a little while to catch on to how good Brady was. Like when I started, when I first covered the NFL, my first beat was a Patriots beat in 05, Kevin, there was still like some people who thought like Brady was like a game manager. There were like yeah. people who thought like, you know, and he was making a lot less money at the time than, than Peyton. Right. He got a new contract. It was like, you know, it was like 70% of what Peyton Manning's contract was. Right. And so I think like there, I think it was a little more, it wasn't all Belichick the first three, but I think it was, you know, if you had to split it up, I think maybe a, a bigger, a bigger percentage of it was Belichick than Brady at that point, especially because those 03 and 04 teams, those rosters were loaded. If you look back at it. Yep. And then the last three, dude, I mean, they came back from down two touchdowns in the fourth quarter against maybe the best defense of that, of that generation, right? The Seahawks defense. And then two years later, came back from 28 to three down in the Super Bowl against the Falcons. And then two years after that, in a game that was played like it was in 1965, right? Like it was just a complete slugfest. He's able to summon a drive at the very end and win that game too. And he won three very different types of games against three very different defenses on the biggest stage in the world. Threw, went to another Super Bowl and threw for 500 yards and lost. Right? Like, I mean, like I, I just think I don't think that the the, the last three championships, like to me, I'm with Curran on that and saying like those three championships were more Brady than Belichick. There's this weird thing that's been going on the past couple of weeks where. Everyone's like, well, you know, Bill doesn't care. Bill just sees this in just another game. And uh, whether or oh, not... Oh, no, he does. That's BS. No, no but, but it's total BS. I mean, like, first of all, anybody you've worked with for a long time, 
you di- you're going to think about it differently. I mean, like, for God's yeah. sakes, I was reading Jason Gay's column yesterday, and, like, we worked together for six years, and I'm like, oh, hey, there's, there's Jason. You know, like, we worked together for six years. You know, it's just a thought you have, okay? And so, like, the idea that, that Belichick would be co- total neutral on this game, A, is ridiculous, even if he just loved the relationship, and even if, if you know, it's just the thought process you have, but then you add in 20 years, you add in all the narratives, you think Belichick is viewing this how? I think he views it as, I think it's personally very important to him. And I don't think he's going to tell anybody that. But I think personally, (laughs) deep down, I mean, look, like we all say like, and, and I mean, for one reason or another, there's been people that have been out there like saying forever, like Bill doesn't really care about like the way, you know, history views him or he's just working week to week and one game at a time and all this BS, right? This is the same guy, by the way, who let NFL films follow him around for an entire season in the middle of his career, right? The same guy who had David Halberstam write a biography on him. The same guy who like welcomed the opportunity to sit down on the NFL 100 series, right? Like if Bill has proper control over some of these projects, He's more than happy to do them. Why? Because he cares about his legacy, legacy. Yep. period. End of story. Like You can't be somebody who appreciates football history as much as he does. And he knows football history. I would wager he knows football history better than anybody on planet Earth. Yes. yes. You aren't that way and not care about where you fit into it, right? Yes. There's no way. Yes. So it, like, I think he understands the magnitude of it. And I think he understands like that Brady has already got one up on him. He understands they probably won't see each other again, right? Like they probably won't play again. If you think about it, it'd have to be a Super Bowl or they could play again. If the, with the 17th game, they could play again in 2023, which would be Brady at age 46. Mm-hmm. If the Bucks and the Patriots finish in corresponding positions in the NFC South and AFC East, if that doesn't happen and they don't mean the Super Bowl, then they wouldn't play again until Brady's 48. And even I don't think Brady's playing 48. So, like, I think he understands he's got one shot at this. And I think he understands the way history is going to view those two. And I, I you know, I, I do think that, like, like, I think he took special pride in, like, how he used to own Bledsoe, right? Like, yeah. how he used to own Bledsoe in those games. Like, I, I just think that there are certain things that, that are important to him and that he'll never admit because it might seem petty or it might seem small, but I think this is one of them. Like, I think it matters to him how his team shows up in a game like this. So if you don't think Brady's going to make it to 48, Breeze already didn't make it to 48. I guess I shouldn't say that, right? No, no. I'm kind of like putting myself one more out there guy, There's one more guy who can make it to 48, and it's Andy Dalton. <laughs> it's, he's our, well, he's Justin, be Fields might save him, Justin Fields might save him a few hits here if he can take the job. Yeah, I hear him. that. Um, I want to talk about the young quarterbacks because I want to get into Mac Jones here for a second. Yep. But what's interesting right now is that the young quarterbacks are winless unless they're playing another rookie, um, yeah. which is Mac Jones' situation. Is there a panic level to any of these? Are any of these teams saying, okay, uh-oh, we've made the wrong pick? Or are they saying, hey, learn the lessons of Josh Allen? Or, I mean, there's so many different ways you can go with it. You can say, okay, Justin Herbert hit immediately. We knew he was great. Uh, Josh Allen did not hit immediately. We did not know he was great. Patrick Mahomes sat for a year, all that stuff. There's so many different ways you can go with it. Um, mm-hmm. Can you just give me a broad temperature and then get as specific as you want with the individual cases on how these buildings are dealing with quarterbacks yeah. who maybe don't look as good? So I like I think um, I think you cannot look at them as a group because I think right. each of them, and I don't, I, I don't even know if this year is unique to this, but it, I mean, generally what you see is 
young quarterback goes, rookie quarterback is drafted in the first round by a really bad team, plays right away for that really bad team. That really bad team does everything they can to shelter him, right? Like that's the way it's always been. And for one reason or another, that just hasn't been the case this year. Um, you know, I had Trent Dilfer on my show last week and he brought up a really great analogy with Trevor Lawrence that I agreed with. It's the Jaguars are treating Trevor Lawrence in 2021 like the Colts treated Peyton Manning in 20, in 1998, right. where it's just let him go out and play. We think that he's mentally tough enough and physically tough enough to deal with it. So let's take our lumps. Let's let him go play quarterback. And if it means we're going 3-14 and 14 this year, so be it. Take his lumps and it will be better for it next year. And so, and look, there are, I don't think there are, I think there are a lot of young quarterbacks that couldn't handle that, but I think that they clearly feel like Trevor Lawrence can based on his experience and how, you know, how consistently he's been on big stages for a long, long time. Zach Wilson to me doesn't have enough help around him. And I think that's why it looks as crappy as it does. And I think that's why you're seeing some of the stuff that, um, I think quite honestly, like that's why you're seeing the stuff that, um, that the, some of the mistakes, some of the stuff that showed up at BYU, you're seeing him like kind of revert to some of that. Yeah. And I think part of the problem here, Kevin is like, like I think they, what, what they needed to do, they needed to do like what the Falcons did with Matt Ryan in 19, in 2008, where they went and signed Michael Turner. Yes. And basically they said, this is Michael Turner's offense. And it allowed them to ease Matt Ryan in. And it, it's just yep. it allowed them to get into second and six more, you know? And so, like, that to me is, I, like, I just, I, like, I, I don't think you can sit him down, but, you know, I, I think Zach Wilson's in a really tough spot. Um, Mac is being managed the way a lot of rookie quarterbacks are managed. The Patriots have, until this past week, kept him out of long yardage. Um, mm-hmm. First two weeks of the season, he was in third down 28 times. Only four of those third downs were third and 10 or more, which is an amazing stat. Um, and he... And so they're sort of managing him and not asking too much of him. Just be a part of the team. Just be the bus driver, which I think is smart. And they'll build him up as he goes on. And uh, Justin Fields, man, like I, I mean, I just think the Bears could have done so much more to help him. And, um, you know, I don't want to be too long winded here, but I can tell you what the Browns thought about. Okay. So the Browns thing, like like the Browns went in there thinking basically the Browns looked at the preseason tape, the Bears preseason tape, and then the first two games. They said they have two different offenses. They have their under center offense, which is basically a McVay-Shanahan type of offense, and they have their shotgun offense, which has got Andy Reid roots, right? So they looked at that tape, and they looked at Justin Fields, and he played a ton of snaps in the preseason, and the Browns said Justin Fields looks way more comfortable under center, okay? We think they're going to play under center more to get the running game going and to get Justin Fields going. Do you know how many times they were under center on Friday, on Sunday? I, I do not. Four. Four out of 45 snaps. And the Browns kept expecting an adjustment and kept expecting yeah. something to change, and it didn't change. So, you know, when I heard that, then I, you know, I hit up a couple people at Ohio State and I asked them, like, what, like, like, did you guys, like, did you guys see this? Did you see that Justin Fields was really comfortable under center? One of the guys said, yeah, you know what? Like, so the year before he, Justin Fields got here, Dwayne Haskins was the starting quarterback. He's like, I don't think we ran one play from under center when Haskins was here. But we figured out that Fields is really good under center. So we, and we, we put under center concepts into our offense because we thought it would make Justin Fields a better player. And it worked. 
And so like, that's the whole thing with Justin to me is like, I hope that the bears do more to help him because I, it just felt to me on Sunday, like not only is he dealing with everything a rookie quarterback uh, normal is normally dealing with, it also felt like he was dealing with a, he, he was, he was, he was up against a game plan that didn't feel like it was sort of built for him. Jesus. <laughs> you, I didn't, I, let me tell you something, Albert. I don't think there was any, I didn't think there was a scenario in which a Bears fan could have popped on this podcast and felt worse about themselves. And here we are. And it's happening. Um, <laughs> by the way, it was interesting because Michael, excuse me, uh, Matt Ryan was on Slow News Day a couple weeks ago and I yeah. actually asked him that question. I said, hey, how do you, what advice do you have for, for young quarterbacks? Because you, you came out of the gates um, looking pretty good in 2008. And he said, get, like, get Michael Turner and just, yeah. and just hand it off to him. I mean, well, and, like, I and so throw. much of it is, so much of it, Kevin, is like you're in second and six, you're in third yeah. and two, you're playing, you know, in a competitive games. And you know what that means? That means the defense can throw less at you, right? Yeah. Like the volume of defense that can get thrown at you in third and two is like a, a fraction of what they can throw at you in third and 12. Yeah. And if they know you're throwing, like if they know you're throwing on, every, they know you have to throw on every play. Like as a rookie, that's an impossible position to be in. I think that's where we're, we've seen some of Trevor Lawrence's mistakes. I think that's where we've seen some of Zach Wilson's mistakes. And I think it was a part of the reason why Justin Fields struggled on Sunday. Uh, last question, uh, Patriots related. The kind of the three weeks of Mac Jones with the camp, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Is there optimism in New England that he's the guy? Um, have they, has he shown anything? Is there, yeah. or is it, are, are they just kind of, um, waiting to for the judgment. How is that feeling? Uh, you know, obviously with the heightened, yeah. uh, the heightened Brady Mac Jones duel this weekend, uh, people will be talking about that. Yeah. So like, I, I just think like it's it, it, like as advertised is kind of like a generic term, but I right. but I do think that that applies here. You know, I I um yeah, I can remember a team telling me like um that they interviewed Mac Jones um or they talked to Mac Jones at, at the Senior Bowl um in January and installed a concept with him. And they came back to him the last week they could do interviews in the middle of April. And they talked to him a bunch of times and they said, all right, like we want you to install the con the first concept we installed with you. And he took, they took them through everything who was on the field, like who, like, like who was going to be on the field with him, like what they were trying to attack with the defense, where the play was going, why it was going there, took them through everything. And that's really who he is. Like he's got, one of these, I guess, supercomputer um, when it comes to football. And so that's who the Patriots have gotten. And I, you know, I asked somebody last week um, there, cause I noticed like, it looked to me like, and you can never really tell, but it looked to me like he was changing some things at the line protections, all of that. And um, you know, the response I got, which I think is a high compliment from Patriots people is he's running our offense. And I don't know that they would have said that about cam last year, but mm-hmm. they said he's running our offense. And so I think Mac is where they expected him to be. The problem is the team around him, I, I just don't think is very good. The team around him is, it's, it's a very average roster. All the activity in free agency was a result of not drafting very well for an extended period of time. And generally, that's not how you build a team. Like you, you can be aggressive in free agency, Kevin, but the teams that have been aggressive in free agency and won with it had a baseline of talent that was in-house, that was built. Like the, 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 the Chiefs, right? The Chiefs were aggressive with Frank Clark and Tyron Matthew, but they drafted Mahomes. They drafted uh, Travis Kelsey. They drafted Tyreek Hill. 
Um, they drafted their tackles or they drafted up, you know, Eric Fisher. Um, you know, you look at the, the, the Bucks, same thing. Like they were aggressive in free agency to build around Brady, but how many of those guys are homegrown? Levante David, Devin White, um, you know, Donovan Smith, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin. So, um, you know, I think that that's a big piece of it is that, you know, right now they're still sort of in the process of paying the piper for a very, very dry spell of drafting between, say, like 2017 and 2019. Albert Breer will be doing this at age 45. He'll be doing this at age 48. He and Tom <laughs> House have sat hey, together. It, Kevin, Kevin, wouldn't it be weird for somebody like you're 40 years old and somebody tells you you can't do it any? I had a conversation with somebody about that like, like earlier today. I was like, that. Like for football, like I, like I always thought that was like kind of like it's got to be like a jarring thing. Like you put all, you put your entire life into something, and you get to your mid thirties, it's like, yeah, you can't do this anymore. You're done, bud. We've noticed a, a decline in your writing and reporting <laughs> yeah. and your podcasting. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna move on. Albert Breer, Sports Illustrated. Thank you so much, buddy. All right, thanks, Kevin. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Sam Monson, lead NFL analyst at Pro Football Focus. Irishman. Mm -hmm. I'm also Irish. Does it annoy you when Americans are just like, I'm also Irish and they've never (laughs) been to Ireland? A little bit, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not quite the same thing, right? You know, being mm. actually from there and being able to vaguely trace some sort of ancestry back there, it's, it's a little bit of a difference. Vaguely, vaguely. Look it up. <laughs> the core the Keelys. Scoreboard, buddy. Um, all right. So we're getting into more Brady talk and more Bucks talk because I'm fascinated. PFF has done some incredible research on kind of what this Brady Tampa Bay offense has become and what that says about the New England offenses of the few years before he joined Tampa. And, and quite frankly, it's fascinating because it has changed my entire perspective on what was going on in New England in the, in the last couple of years Brady was there, what's going on in Tampa. Um, Sam, you've written about this. What has Tampa Bay done? What has Bruce Arians done? What have the skill guys around him done um, to unlock more of Brady at this age when we didn't think that was possible? I mean, a big thing, I think, is we're just seeing what happens when you suddenly give Brady some receiving talent again. And that was the big thing in New England, that they haven't really gotten fixed yet. They're still working towards it. But the last year of Tom Brady, the first year of Cam Newton, uh, the only year of Cam Newton, I guess, um, it was the same problem. Like, nobody's getting open. And when nobody gets open to the degree that that was happening in New England, it makes everything look worse. So Brady has nowhere to go with the ball. And you think, well, that has a limited, you know, knock-on effect. It just means that he's not going to be able to throw it to any open guys. But it means that Brady starts to hold the ball longer, right? Because he's waiting for somebody to get open and it's never happening. So all of a sudden the offensive line starts to look worse because Brady's holding on to the ball longer than he ever used to. Then Brady starts to look worse under pressure because even when the pressure gets there because he's holding on to the ball longer, still nobody's open. So he doesn't play as well under pressure as he used to. And now you start getting the, you know, Brady decline narratives come back out again. Right. So 
But the, it, it all traces back to the fact that just nobody was able to win matchups one-on-one. You go to Tampa Bay, and even though the offense is dramatically different in the system and all those kinds of things, just look at the array of receiving yeah. talent that they can deploy, and they've only been adding to it since he got there. You know, he brings Gronk out of retirement. They get Antonio Brown as a kind of roll of the dice to see what that can be um, as an addition last year. Even in the draft this year, they're grabbing guys like Jalen Darden late on who could, you know, potentially make an impact later in the season or if people get injured. Um, and that's in addition to Chris Godwin and Mike Evans and OJ Howard and Cameron Brayton. And there's just so many places for Brady to go with the ball. So even if they face a defense that's able to take away his top option or his second option, there, there's no shortage of places for him to go with. So you had a piece over the summer that I found fascinating about Brady's lack of decline. And one of the things in it, and this is something we talked about, all of us talked about last September, October, when Brady was looked like he was at least struggling a little bit to adjust the, the Arians offense, which is everybody makes a lot of mistakes in the Arians offense, especially early. So the stat that, that was, excuse me, the stat that was in the piece was, so Andrew Luck, Carson Palmer, Jameis Winston, all of them had 40 turnover-worthy plays in their first year in the Arians offense. All of them uh, had an over 5% rate of that. Brady had 12. 40 against 12. And he had, it was less than 2% of his throws. And I'm curious, Sam, uh, when you look at the numbers, is that just Brady just being a better quarterback than everybody else, smarter than everybody else? Did Arians make any tweaks and make, make Brady more comfortable? I know earlier in the year they ran some of the more uh, New Englandy concepts, but what was that offense like? And, and what do you attribute Brady's um, success specifically with, with not, not making mistakes? One of the most impressive things I've ever seen from a quarterback was when Peyton Manning went to Denver, um, realized right away that he just wasn't the same player physically as he used to be. He couldn't make the same throws that he made a career out of in Indy and kind of retaught himself how to play the game like on the fly during the course of a season in the first mm-hmm. sort of three, four weeks of that year. This is right up there with that, though. Is Brady going to a completely different system one that's the polar opposite of what he was doing in New England for most of his career and not having the growing pains that every other quarterback, even good quarterbacks. I mean, Andrew Luck, you know, great quarterback. Carson Palmer, when he finally got that system with Bruce Arians, had an MVP caliber year. Um, And Jameis Winston has been incredibly productive. (laughs) Uh, But like... Brady not having the the growing pains those guys had was just completely ridiculous. To be able to be as productive as he was and be amongst the league's best in terms of not putting the ball in harm's way was absolutely crazy. And, you know, Arians tweaked the system a little bit, but it was still pretty close to, you know, the, the pure distilled version of what he wants to run. Brady still had like the highest average depth of target in the NFL, albeit a, a yard sort of lower than Jameis Winston would have the year before. So, you know, Brady, this is Brady. This is why he's, yeah. The greatest of all time. I asked this question of Abreu before you were on, and I'm curious your perspective since you, you've studied it with the data and all that stuff. Does what Brady is doing in New England and how much success they've had and how much success Brady's had adjusting that offense on the fly, does any of that change your view of the Patriots dynasty, how much success each person is responsible for? Um, and because when I, I said this to Albert, but when when 
when Brady left, I said, okay, everything in the past is settled. Nothing can change my mind. This is a bonus. And the more Brady does this, the more I change my mind on that. Where, right. where are you on that, Sam? Yeah, I mean, I think the your starting point should always be that they're like the perfect combination, right? And they right. they they become a greater, uh, they're greater than the sum of their parts. And that's why when you put them all together, that's why they won all the rings. But the longer Brady goes outside of New England and looks the same, I think the more you have to start start skewing in his direction, particularly if Bill Belichick, you know, isn't able to create some sort of revival with Mac Jones or with whoever the next right. quarterback is. If if he toils away as a good but not great franchise absent of Tom Brady, and yet Brady keeps on trucking, dragging whatever the next team is to another Super Bowl, it's hard to, to not let that influence you and say, Brady does appear to be a guy that's just different. Like he, he is responsible for um, improving the level of everybody around him. And that's so far resulted in championships in two different franchises. And one at the first time of asking, the guy just rolls into the building of a team that was, you know, trying to get to the playoffs, but not a real Super Bowl contender and immediately spends half a season kind of working out the kinks and then just goes on a roll and, and wrecks everybody on, on his way through to a Super Bowl. In 2014, Lord knows I've made terrible predictions. Um, in 2014, <laughs> you said that that Tom Brady was no longer a top five quarterback. Yeah. And you probably thought, okay, well, there's, you know, when you were taking your medicine, you won the Super Bowl, you probably thought like, all right, well, eventually he'll just retire and I won't have to be proven wrong. Uh, seven years later, I bet you didn't see this one coming. Now I'm hoping to get the decade under my belt. We can go like a full <laughs> 10 years, but you know, between me writing him off. It, like uh, guys who get like watches at a, <laughs> yes. at, at a company, we can just give you like your 10th anniversary gift, your 15th when he's playing, when he's like 52, we can give you a, fif- uh, a 15th anniversary of your prediction. Now we're talking. The scary thing is like, when you look at, like I've read that article back a couple of times just to figure out where, where it yeah. all went wrong. And the, I think, statistically it was sound like the data did point to some kind of regression in his play and i think at that point he was declining what i just didn't see was a complete reversal of that you know you figure the age he was at that point it's roundabout when quarterbacks typically start to decline although that's changed with him and breeze and manning since Mm -hmm. um so it sort of made sense uh, and I, even in the piece it was like you know we're not going to see him drop off a cliff it's going to be like a slow steady decline until he just decides he's not good enough to win championships anymore. But the idea that since then, not only did he completely reverse that, but he physically now looks better than he has in his entire career. Like that's the ridiculous part of this. He isn't going to hit whatever wall Peyton Manning hit in terms of like his arms, just a noodle now, same with Drew Brees. And the thing that was the thing that takes out the other guys, the Brett Favre's of the world is eventually a hit just breaks something. And then it turns out he played all last season on a torn MCL. You're like, if that doesn't take him out, nothing's going to. Like, he's just going to keep on going until he decides it's time. The conversation around Brady is so funny to me because I, we did a top five players in the NFL list a couple of weeks ago with some of my colleagues. And I said, we, I think we have to put Tom Brady in the top five in the NFL. And there were people, and I don't know who these, who these people are, they're Twitter people. And mm-hmm. one guy was like, this is embarrassing. It's an embarrassing take. And then another guy was like, I, I can't, you've lost all credibility by saying Tom Brady, whatever he was, the fifth best player <laughs> in the NFL. Okay, let me break this down for you guys. Every time you add this guy to any team, they compete for a Super Bowl. I don't know how else you can 
judge this. Like I do, I'm sorry. Like at some point, Tom Brady is a is the most valuable player in football. Like I just don't, or at least a top three one, because every time he seems to go someplace, they seem to build an instant contender. Yeah, I, I agree. I think right now, I mean, he's the greatest quarterback of all time, and part of that is because he's been doing it for twenty plus years. But the ridiculous thing is, right now he's at his peak. Right now is as good as he's ever been. Like if you ever thought that Tom Brady was the best quarterback in the NFL in a given yes. year. He's at that same level right yes. now. Okay, yes. you've added Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers and all those guys to the league, but he's right up there. There was a, a piece on your site last uh, January, I think, that said that this last year was maybe his second best season of all time. Like, w- what else do we need here, guys? What else do we need? All right, that's Sam Monson. He's the lead NFL analyst for Football Focus. Thanks for joining us, buddy. Thanks for having me, man. Okay, thank you to Albert and Sam for joining us. Thank you to Stefan Anderson and Arjuna Ramkapol for production help. This has been the Ringer NFL Show on the Ringer Podcast Network. Next up on this feed, it's Nora and Mallory for the Thursday show. Kaylin, Ben, and Stephen Ruiz on Friday. I'll be back on Sunday. Please, please watch Slow News Day. We have the aforementioned Mallory Rubin on. Amazing show. We get into Justin Fields, Justin Tucker. I invite myself onto the Ringerverse. It doesn't go so well. We'll see you then.